0: Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, for those of you who are new this morning, so glad you're here. Welcome. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Crosspoint, and uh, you're so welcome here. Hey, at this time, we are going to dismiss our kids uh, up to grade six for our spot on kids ministry. So uh, if you look at Delaney in the back quarter section over there. Yeah. Hello, Delaney. You guys head on down that way and she will lead you down to the promised land. Yeah, No running with scissors. tried that once, got really messy. Well, hey, I'm in, uh, just thrilled to introduce our uh, summer salsa speaker today. Uh, for those of you who have uh, been, been part of our Crosspoint community for a while, you will be familiar with uh, this young gentleman. Uh, (laughs) uh, He's a good friend of mine. We worked together for four years at Beulah Alliance Church. Uh, He's now in the marketplace doing uh, marketplace ministry as a call of God on his life now. And uh, uh, yeah, you're just going to really enjoy what he has to share with us this morning. So I want us to give a warm Crosspoint welcome to none other than Art Reimer. So come on up, Art.
1: called Young for a long time, so that was just a treat. Um, Anyways, it's great to be with you here again. It's great to see Rob took me on a little tour of the facility. Uh, I'm just so happy for uh, the Cross Point Church and for the folks that were at Beverly before that you can kind of merge into this um, this, uh, gathering together. So it's great. Hopefully lots of great ministry is going to occur out of here. Um, Before we dive into God's Word together, I'm going to invite you to pray. Um, and let's just invite you to join me as we pray. Lord, as I review the biblical history and I think of the role of the Holy Spirit uh, throughout the history, um, I just come to you and declare my dependence on you again. Um, Holy Spirit, I, I think of how when Adam and Eve were created and you came and you breathed into them and they became human beings, alive and and we think of the, the story in, X, in Ezekiel where there was this valley of dry bones and Holy Spirit, you came and um, they became alive and they became this vast army. And then again in Acts chapter 2, you came and you breathed Holy Spirit on them as a church. And, and we're here because of that. And, and we need you again today. And so I pray that you would breathe on me and through me and each person sitting here, Lord, that you would take these words from your, your word, and you would enliven them to us, that today, um, increased life would happen, and we are declaring our dependence and obedience to you right now, in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever heard of a name, um, or it, um, Ignaz Semel- Semmelweis, and I'm going to get you him to put a picture of Ignaz on there. So this is a, an individual who lived in the, he was a medical doctor who lived in the 1840s and, and um, he kind of sets up our, our talk today. I'm going to talk a little bit about Ignaz Semmelweis today because um, as you probably have discovered in life, um, sometimes things that seemed really insignificant are actually quite significant. Like, at the time, you didn't think it was a big deal, but later you found out, no, it's actually a pretty big deal. Well, Ignaz discovered something that was actually a pretty big deal. As I said, he was a medical doctor who worked in the 1840s, um, and he worked at two uh, maternity clinics. And the two clinics were right next to each other. One of the clinics was uh, staffed by medical doctors, and the other maternity clinic uh, was staffed by midwives. And he ended up going back between both of those clinics. And he noticed something in between the two clinics that was very perplexing to him and was also very upsetting to him. Um, the difference in the two clinics, in the, in the doctor's maternity clinic and in the midwife maternity clinics, um, was that women in the doctor's maternity clinic were dying of a fever, commonly known at the time as child bed fever. And the women in that doctor's clinic were dying at five times the rate of the women who were in the uh, midwife clinics. And um, he couldn't understand why that was happening. And it was a time in the medical profession when they were starting to become a little bit more careful with collecting data on, on what was going on in people. Um, they were actually starting to perform some autopsies. Start, so he starts paying attention to what's happening in these two maternity clinics. Why is there such a life and death difference? And, and he looked at each clinic and, and found the things that they were doing differently, and um, So he found out that in the doctor's clinic, the women were giving birth lying on their backs, but in the midwife clinics, the women were giving birth lying on their sides, and so he told the doctors, maybe you should try getting the women to give birth while they're lying on their sides, and well, as you might have guessed, that didn't make any difference at all. It didn't help at all, so he continued to look at the evidence, and, and he noticed that the doctor's clinic again, where the death rate was five times higher, he noticed that the priest's after one of the women would die of this childbed fever, a priest would walk through the clinic dinging a bell. Um, not sure why the priest would walk through the clinic dinging a bell, but the, police would, the priest would walk through the clinic ringing this bell and indicating that another woman had died of this fever. So Dr. Well, Semmelweis thought, well, maybe the other women in the clinic are hearing the bell and they just get really terrified and they develop this fever and they die from it. Um, now remember, this is 1846. So he had the priest to stop ringing the bell. Well, as you might have guessed, that wasn't the problem either. So he starts looking at more differences in these two maternity clinics. And here's what he notices. Um, In the doctor's clinic, unlike the midwife's clinic, the doctors would perform autopsies of the women who had died of the fever. And then immediately upon doing those autopsies, they would go and deliver babies without washing their hands or their instruments. Now that seems really obvious to us today. But you have to remember that they had not discovered germs and the whole idea of disinfecting things at that time yet it would be only years later that louis pasteur would discover germs and he would connect all the dots for people but he just knew when he looked at the clinics that this was one of the differences so he told the doctors okay on a go-forward plan let's wash our hands and let's wash wash our instruments and and he said we'll use chlorine because he just thought it would get rid of the smell of the corpses He didn't know why it would make a difference, but he said, let's try it and see if it makes a difference. So they started washing their hands. They started washing the instruments, and sure enough, it made a difference because it it, it changes everything. It becomes this difference between life and death for these women. And we know today that in the medical profession, uh, people washing their hands and disinfecting instruments has saved more lives than probably any other breakthrough that's happened in the past generation. It's a really big deal, but it seems so insignificant just washing your hands but it had this life and death implication. And today, I kind of want to use that as a metaphor as we talk about the power of words. Uh, now, we understand that words are important, but, but really, are they a matter of life and death? Isn't that a little bit overstated? Are, are they really that significant? Well, look what Proverbs says on Proverbs 18, 21, and I'll just get you to pull that verse up if you can, if, it, if you have it on the slide. Um, if you don't, it's on your outline. Proverbs 18.21 says, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Now, this isn't high, hyperbolic language, hoping to motivate us to pay closer attention to the words that we speak. This, is, as we're, we're going to discover, is, is much more literal than we could possibly imagine. The, the tongue, our tongues had the power of life and death, the average person, not the Not the super shy one and not the overly talkative one, but the average person speaks about 16,000 words a day. That's a a lot of words. Uh, Maybe it's the sheer number of words that we speak. Uh, I I don't know, but maybe maybe it's that, that we we underestimate the the significance that each word could possibly have. Uh, Some of us are internal processors, some of us are external processors, but we all talk a lot about 16,000 words a day. That's like writing a 50-page book every single day that you speak. In a year's lifetime, or in a year's time, the average person would fill 132 books of 200 pages each. The point is, we we are talking, constantly talking. We're talking to ourselves, we're talking to others, we tweet, we text, uh, we communicate, and each of those words matters. And and the Bible is going to warn us about being careless with our words. It's easy, with so many words being spoken and floated around, to underestimate. It's kind of like scooping up sand at the beach, there are lots of grains of sand in your hand, and, and, and you're not concerned if a few slip between your fingers, and, and, and it's kind of like that. We become careless with our words. Uh, we're constantly speaking them, as I said, and, and, and a few, even a few of them can have the power of life and death. Now, now some of you know this because you grew up in a home where a few of you words were spoken, and, and those words spoke death into your life, and you can remember those words, just three or four of them. Um, or, or maybe it was in a classroom or maybe it was um, in a coaching situation where a, a coach or a parent or a teacher or a friend said something to you and it, it brought life to you. You know, I, I think when I was in college, I was just kind of m- meandering through my four year college degree. I was, I was at a Bible college, very heavily involved in different leadership functions at the, at the school. And, but my grades were um, average at the best. Um, and it wasn't because I didn't know what I was doing, it was just because I handed everything in late. I'm very late. Um, the last week of school, typically. Um, and one day, as I was on my way to class, my favorite prof pulled me into his office, and he, he just said, I, you know, I've just been watching you for the last three years, Art, and then he, he just said a few words, like very short few words of encouragement, but those words were such words of power and life to me that my next semester, my grade point average jumped by, by one, one point. Um, because I, I got motivated because someone knew and saw and believed in me and said you could do it. Before we look at our main text today, I want to talk about how God has wired, hardwired the power of words into the universe. Let's look at this text on your outlines from Genesis chapter one and I want you to pay attention to how the power of words are in full display. This is the very first part of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void or empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So at the beginning of of time, God creates the universe, and how does He do it? What tool does He use? He uses words. God says, and it is. And you see that throughout the entire creation account. God said, and it happened. When God separates from the land, from the water, He doesn't start digging. He starts talking. He uses his mouth, not his hands. Now, if you go over a few chapters in the book of Genesis, in this passage, uh, we're going to see that words have the power of death. This is the passage where sin enters the world. God has created man and woman, and, and God has said that it's very good. Now, Satan comes on the scene, scene in the form of a serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Look what it says there. Now, the serpent was more crafty, or another translation would say he was more clever um, than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And the serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What does he do? He speaks to the woman and he says, do, do I understand what God told you? So he speaks and then he attacks what God has said and then he would go on and say this to her. Hey, God didn't really mean, they didn't really say that. So what does the enemy use? The enemy uses words to bring death where there was life and to break darkness where there was light. Then if you look at Jesus, if you follow this all through the, book, through the Bible, Jesus is constantly using words to speak life and, and healing and blessing. When Jesus is in the boat and the storm is raging, He doesn't tell the storm to calm down with His hands or some kind of motion. What does the Bible say He does? The Bible says He speaks to the storm. Peace. Be still. And, and, and there's calm instantly. This is the power of Jesus' word. And then in John chapter 11, Jesus shows up at the tomb of Lazarus a few days after Lazarus has died. He doesn't go into the tomb and kind of like, you know, pop Lazarus on the head and say, wake up. The Bible says he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And with those words, he speaks life into death and Lazarus comes back from the dead. So again, we see the power of words both from God, from the enemy, Satan, and from Jesus. Now, I'm not saying you can walk into a seventy mile hour wind and say peace and you know it's going to calm down or walk over to a cemetery today and tell people to come out what i am saying is that words are the tools that god uses to create words are the tools that jesus used to bring life where there was darkness to bring light and hope and because we're all made in the image of god god has given us as human beings the ability to speak and with that ability he's given us the power to speak life or death into the world around us that's what i'm saying uh, the truth is, our words hold power beyond our wildest imagination. They have the power of life and death, as Proverbs says. They can build up or tear down, they can create or destroy, they can oppress or set free. They may not seem that significant, but they are a matter of life and death. Now, Dr. Semmelweis tried to get doctors to wash their hands, and it, and it be came, became his mantra through life Wash your hands, please, everyone, wash your hands. And he he had no idea how it worked or why it worked. Because, as I said, germs hadn't been discovered yet. He, He couldn't connect the dots scientifically. He just knew that it was right and true and that it worked. But guess what? Very shortly after he discovered this, his colleagues refused to wash their hands. And he became obsessed with this message because he saw the difference it makes. And he would say it over and over again, wash your hands. And he saw the suffering and the death But they don't do it, and literally it drives him mad. And he's committed to a mental mental institution at the age of 47. So the question is, why wouldn't the doctors accept his message? Well, it's one reason. They couldn't connect the dots scientifically. But one of the main reasons they discovered they wouldn't accept his message because it was a self-indicting message. It's hard for your brain to go there. Because if, if you accept that it's true, that I didn't wash my hands, if there's all this, this suffering and calamity in the world, that means it's my fault. I didn't wash my hands. And, and they didn't do it on purpose because they were the ones who spread the infection in the per- first place. It was, it was a self-indictment for them. And, and the other reason they found that they didn't wash their hands was that it seemed way too simple. And, and for, some of you, for some of us who are listening to this today... Uh, if, if we're going to take it ser- seriously, it means that we are going to indict ourselves because we have brought pain and hurt to other people with words that we have spoken, and, and it's just way easier to not think about it. We want to run away from the truth that our words have had the power of, of life and or death. And I think it also seems that it's, it's just really simple. Really, changing the way I'm going to speak is going to bring life, into my marriage? Changing the way I speak is going to change my destiny or change someone else's destiny? Does it really, really have that kind of impact? Well, I think it does. There's a, there's a very relevant passage in the Bible, and many of you are familiar with it. The author of the passage is, is, is James. He's the half-brother to Jesus. And James, he talks a lot about words. I, I think he talks a lot about words because it was a problem for the early church. And, and James is, is probably the very first New Testament letter that's been written. In James chapter 1, he writes to Christians, and he says, A Christian who doesn't control his sharp tongue is just fooling himself, and his religion is worthless. James says this, If you're a Christian and your faith isn't changing the way you talk, then your faith really isn't worth very much. Now, as I read through the book of James, I kind of get the impression that controlling his tongue or controlling your tongue is something that James struggled with himself. Um, he kind of refers to the, t- this, the tongue as a member out there. You know, it's not part of him. It's, it's like he's frustrated when he's talking about it. He, he's talking as if it's a guy who's blown it so many times. And he, and he's, he uses metaphors. And I think it's just because he, he lived it himself. And, and I think he gives us, in chapter 3 of James, three big ideas about words. So let me go through them with you. First, James would say to us, my words will determine the direction of my life. Where are you going to be 10 years from now? Look at your words. Look at your conversation. What do you talk about? We shape our words, and then our words shape us. Look at what he says. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect or a mature or a healthy person or a healthy man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. You know, just this past weekend, my family and I were at Camp Nachaman for the family, uh, a family camp, and and myself and two of my daughters uh, went on a horse-drawn trailer. Um, and, and while on the trip, the, the driver, I don't know what they call the guy that was, anyways, driving the horses, um, was talking to one of the young girls that was sitting right behind him and, and showing her how he could just pull on the rein, which would pull on the bit in the horse's mouth, and it would turn the horse. And I thought it was kind of interesting. You have these two 1,200-pound horses being maneuvered by just a little, a little bit inside their mouth. It's tiny, but it's significant. It has tremendous power to move and shape our destiny and direction of our lives. And, and James also compares the tongue to a rudder on a ship. He says, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. You know, there's, there's ships out there who will have three acres of recreational space floating around on the ocean. And the anchor weighs at least ten, ten, uh, 10 cars. So they got this huge anchor. And then they got this little rudder that just directs that, that ocean liner um, out in the middle of the wind and the waves and the seas. A little rudder will keep it on course. Uh, our tongue, James is saying, is like a rudder that steers us. Now listen to this, because I think this is what James is saying. James is saying, your tongue and my tongue is the steering wheel of our life. It's the steering wheel of our life. If you don't like the way you're headed right now, change the way you talk. Change the way you talk about life. Then James goes on and tells us something else about our speech. He says, my words can destroy what I have. It's kind of the second big idea he gives us. Look what he says. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is as fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, setting, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and itself is set on fire by hell itself. A couple of years ago on May 1st, um, 2016, a fire started about 15 kilometers south of Fort, Fort Mac. You, you can see it there on the screen. By May 3rd, that, to- that fire had hit the town, forcing the largest evacuation in Alberta history. We're all very familiar with it. 88,000 people were evacuated out of this this town. As the fire grew, it expanded into Saskatchewan and ultimately it covered about 1.5 million acres of land. In all total, 3,244 structures were destroyed by this fire. And finally, on July 5th of 2016, it was declared under control. And by August 2nd, over a year, Almost a year and three months later, August 2nd of 2017, they finally got the fire out. Now, as, as I was thinking about what James here, said here, I, I read a little bit about how they investigate fires. The very first thing that investigators will do, they'll focus on the origins of the fire. They, they want to know exactly where the fire started. And it's kind of shocking, but they can actually pinpoint the exact location of where most fires start. And they can typically figure out what caused it as well. They'll, they'll pay attention to fire patterns, uh, which way in a, in a fire with grass, which way the grass is lying down because the grass lays apparently towards the origin of the fire, pointing to where it started. They'll study satellite images. Um, and once they find its origin, where it actually started, they'll f- try to figure out what caused the fire at the beginning. And they've discovered that about 90% of wildfires are caused by humans, a campfire that's left unintended. Uh, a cigarette butt that's flicked out the window. Someone has burnt some debris. Um, some careless act has happened, or in other situations, arson has occurred. Investigate, investigators want to know, where did it start? Where did it all begin? And what caused it? Now, in the case of Fort Mac, thousands of homes were destroyed, thousands of structures. $9.9 billion worth of damage has been paid out. It, it began with one little spark And they do know that it had a human cause. They just don't know exactly what the humans had done yet. But they're working on trying to find the cause of it. This is the word picture James uses. This is the image of a word being released uh, carelessly, maybe unintentionally. But that word creates this spark, and the spark turns into a fire, and that fire creates uh, an awful lot of destruction. And James is making the point as strongly as he can that our words have weight. They are significant. Uh, our tongue is so small, but is disproportionately powerful. And, and if you trace this throughout history, you'll find that a lot of the pain and destruction of war began with some words. Someone made a speech and used some careless word or threatening word, and it escalated, and it turned into a war. Uh, but it all began with some words. Words are what typically will end a marriage. You, you might see a marriage... On fire, or one that's being scorched, and, and it's a mess. And if you trace and fire, uh, 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 trace the fire back to its origin. If you look at the fire pattern and you go back to where it started and how it started, more often than not, you're going to find out that it started with some words. Maybe words that have, should have been spoken and weren't spoken, and and maybe complaining words or critical words or controlling words or mean words, but some words that that created the spark and and the spark grew into this big fire, and it wiped out the home. Words are what make a workplace toxic. Some of you know this because it didn't used to be the way that it is now. But then someone came in, and they were a gossip, or they, they started to complain. It just changed the entire temperature of the workplace, and, and and words can turn neighbors into enemies, and words can hurt the body of Christ and divide or weaken a church. Words can make kids insecure or hopeful about their future. You know, I think of... Uh, church plant that i was involved in there was the the presence of god was in this little church we were around 180 200 people and had probably seen about 120 adults come to christ Uh, the the power of god was at work um, in an incredible way and then we had a church business meeting and there were some words that were said in that meeting by some people that i believe grieved the power or grieved the person of the holy spirit and it stopped dead in its tracks that day and we never got it back. We never got the presence of God back in that little church the way we had it. James goes on to say, he talks about a zoo. He says, all kinds of animals have been tamed by a man, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That word he uses for restless, it means that it's liable to break out at any time. Have you ever seen this in your own life? You're, you're, you're gentle, you're kind, you're thoughtful, and all at once... Your tongue breaks out into something that's not what you wanted it to say. It's just, it's untamable. And then he says it's full of deadly poison. That word he uses for poison in the Greek language means it's, it's snake venom. Just a few drops of it can kill. Our tongues are powerful. They, they can do an incredible amount of good, but they can also do some, some serious damage. Then James goes, goes on to say in the third big idea, my words display who I am. They display who I am. With the tongue we praise our God and Father, and with it we curse men. Who have been made in God's image? Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers. This should not be. We come to church and we praise God in worship, and we get in the car, and on the way home we argue about what we're going to eat for lunch. Isn't it amazing how quickly our attitudes can change? Our tongues are such a strange contradiction. The word he uses, word for cursing, doesn't necessarily mean profanity. It's kind of, it's more about putting people down. You're just like, you're never like, you, you, you never do this. You're always doing this. You know, I, I, I am baffled by myself. One moment I can be kind and gentle and talking in a loving tone, and the next moment I can be mean and harsh with my words. And, and I grieve, I grieve over that in my own life. Do you, do you struggle with an inconsistent tongue or is it just me? So, so what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Well, first of all, we need to realize we'll struggle with this the rest of our lives. James says the tongue cannot be tamed. You can manage it, but you will never tame your tongue. James says, in fact, the the problem is really not the tongue. The problem is the source. He asks a question in James 3. He says, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salty water produce, or salty spring produce fresh water. Whatever is in the well is coming out. Uh, My problem is not really my tongue. My problem is my heart. Jesus said this, for whatever is in your heart determines what you're going to say. Sometimes we say this, well, I don't know where that came from. And Jesus says, I do. That actually came, that actually came from your heart. You might not see the connection, but there's a connection there. So the question is, what am, what am I putting into my heart? What am I allowing into my heart? Um, I say you know we, we all say an angry word and they would just say well, that was just kind of a slip-up. Well, well no, it actually shows that there's some anger in the heart um, that's going on. So I'm, I'm gonna say this. There's three things I think that we can do. The first is take out the trash. Look at Proverbs 4, verse 23. Above all else, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. In Hebrew culture, the heart is the center of the person, the spiritual hub where all the spokes of life come out of. And he says you guard that because everything in your life is flowing from your heart. Whatever is in you is what is gonna come out of you. And, and how do you do that? Well, I think one of the ways you, you do that is, is you yield your heart to Jesus and you ask him by his spirit to modify it and to change it. You become self-aware. You, you assess your speech. You you do some assessment of your speech and go, okay, what is my speech telling about what's going on in my heart? If my speech is consistently complaining, there's got to be something about my heart that isn't right. If my speech has got this harshness to it, what's the bitterness inside me that I need to let Jesus clean up? See, most of us put the attention on the behavior modification instead of the heart renovation. And it's more about the heart than we think it is. So what I find is helpful is to confess is just do an inventory. Did I speak words of life or did I speak words of death today? And own the fires that your words have started. And that might take some serious, serious um, self-indicting behavior. I think this is the truth. The truth is my words are the hottest and the heaviest and carry the most weight generally with the people that are closest to me. And often in my inventory... I'll, I'll be able to know what I've spoken is, is not life just by the responses of those that are closest to me. See how they're reacting to you physically. Are they, are they distancing themselves? Is it, does it feel like there's a wall up that should tell us something very clearly about our words? Another way we guard our hearts is, is we, we're always hearing words from other people, aren't we? We need to learn to categorize those words That other people give us is either truth or trash. Uh, We need to analyze the message and the source before swallowing and digesting what someone else feeds you. If their words are true or mean-spirited and critical without being constructive, you need to go, you know, that's just toxic waste. I am not letting it sit inside my heart. I'm going to reject it. This is a trite way to say it. Um, I am rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say to me bounces off of me and sticks to you. I know it's a lot more complicated than that, but um, we need to be watching what's going on in our own hearts when other people speak to us. Sidlow Baxter said it this way, the proof that God's Spirit is in your life is not that you speak in an unknown tongue, but you control the tongue that you do know. So not only do we need to take out the trash, the second thing we need to do is speak life-giving words to others. If you think something good, say it. Um... There's a word in Proverbs, or passage in Proverbs 25, verse 11. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Words can be this beautiful gift of life you give to someone. Every time you think of something positive, give it life with your words. Bless someone with positive words. A, a business book called The Carrot Principle did a 10-year study involving 200,000 employees. One of the key findings was that 79% of employees who quit their jobs, did it because no one encouraged them at work. No one said a word of life to them. A culture of criticism happened. Colossians 4, 6, it's on your outline, says, let your conversation be always, always full of grace, seasoned with salt. He uses the word always to indicate how often our speech should be seasoned with grace. You know, just as salt can change the taste of a french fry, turning it from this boring plain potato into something absolutely delicious grace can turn your speech into something remarkable god doesn't want our speech to be bland he wants our speech to bring flavor now when you have a chef they, the food is not seasoned by mistake a chef has got this intentional effort a master chef will take their spices and salt and and they'll they'll put it on their food and then they'll taste it and go now nah, i need, need a little bit more the same intentionality that a chef will use on their food, God is saying, I want you to use in your speech. Grace is the flavor of God. Think about how you're going to add grace into your speech this next week. And then lastly, and I think this is maybe the most important one, speak life-giving words to yourself. In Isaiah 55, God says that that His word is like a, a seed that gets planted and it bears fruit. And and it never comes back empty. Whatever you plant, whenever you plant the seed of God's Word, it's going to bear fruit. And, and in Proverbs 18.21, at the very front of your outline, it says, the tongue is the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The, the idea is that your words are like seeds that are getting planted. And, and whatever you ever planted with those words will determine what fruit you will eat one day. They, they have life and death, and you plant a word of life in yourself it's going, to have, it's going to produce fruit of life. You, you plant self-talk, that is death, and it's going to poison you. So let me give you some things as we wrap up that you can say to yourself this next week. The enemy is going to start your day off telling you that your sins have condemned you and that you are a prisoner of your past. And you need to speak this truth over your life this next week. I am not condemned by my sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am not a prisoner. The enemy is going to say to you sometime this next week, he'll tell you that you don't have a purpose, that you're wasting your life at your job, at your school, or at home, that you have nothing special to offer to anyone. And so you need to tell yourself that I am going to make a difference today because I know that today God has prepared good works in advance for me to do. And he's gifted me to do them. And I know that that is true. The enemy this next week, I can guarantee you, is going to tell you, He's going to be constantly putting words in front of you that will cause you to feel stressed and worried because he does this with all of us. And you need to say to yourself, today, I am not anxious and I am not weighed down because I know that God cares for me. He is for me and I have cast my burdens onto him. The enemy this week, he's going to tell you this because he tells me this all the time, he's going to tell you that you're not competent and that you're a weak I need to say, I do not have a spirit of fear. I don't. But I have a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And when I am weak, God is going to display his strength to me even more so. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. You need to tell yourself these things. The enemy this next week is going to tell you this. He's going to tell you that you do not have enough resources. And that's we you need to say. My God has promised to supply all my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And we we shy away from telling ourselves this type of stuff because we think, well, that's a form of humanism. And, we, you know, humanism says, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough. This is not, that's not what this is. This is speaking God's truth to yourself. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus makes this amazing statement, and we don't have time to unpack it, but I encourage you to read it later and think about it. Jesus says, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, And does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. He doesn't say to pray about the mountain. He says to speak to the mountain. One author says it this way, don't talk about your mountain, talk to it. If you're facing a mountain in your life, tell it, tell the mountain. You are not bigger than my God, and with God's help, I will defeat you. David was a teenage shepherd boy. He used words to build his faith while facing a mountain of a man called Goliath. And David said to the Philistine, You come against me with spirit and sword and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. Dr. Semmelweis has had several medical schools named after him, hospitals named after him, um, women's clinics named after him, museums that honor his name. And in honor of him, there's a term that is used now in in the medical schools called this, the Semmelweis reflex. The Semmelweis reflex is the knee-jerk reflex to reject new evidence without experimentation because it goes against what has been accepted or practiced. You know, his message to to doctors always, just try it. Just try it. And that's what I invite you to do today, today. Just try it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you would intentionally guard your heart and you would ask the Spirit of God to change it. And whenever you think of something life-giving to say to anyone around you, you would share it with them. And that you would intentionally speak God's Word over your life and into your life this next week. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much amazing good that can be done with our words. And yet we, we're very aware, like James, that, that our hearts need to be renovated by You. And so we invite You today to, to renovate us, to, to fill us with Your Spirit. And Lord, this next week, I pray that when we think of things to say, we notice something good about someone else that we would, we would actually go and speak it to them. We would create life by doing that. And Father, I pray for our own self-talk that we have in our minds. So much of it is so not life-producing. I pray that you would help us to create different words that we speak to ourselves. Your word, what you say about us. Oh, Holy Spirit, we invite you to apply this into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Well, thanks for listening to our podcast.